So welcome everybody back for season two of Dear School Psychs List of Podcasts. So in this particular episode, I want us to focus on assessment. I went to this really great conference. It's called the Unconference um, Uprooting School Psychology. And it was basically a dynamic experience where a lot of people just spoke about different topics in the field concerning social justice. And I would I had the pleasure there of meeting someone named Shannon, and she facilitated a session on assessment that I thought was just phenomenal and a great conversation. We can kind of talk and deconstruct what it means, um, what the assessment pipeline is. I also met another phenomenal woman here. And her name's Miriam, but I'm going to let her and I'm also going to let Shannon introduce themselves. So Shannon, if you could start. Hi, everyone. So my name is Shannon Martinez, Perez noted, and I am a school psychologist by training. I am a mother by choice. And I was so excited to um, experience the, the unconference was it last week or two weeks ago? I agree, it was such a dynamic experience and it was one that was almost like, you know, a little um, uneasy at times because we didn't really know what to expect or like how it was gonna go. But I think the way it went was great. There were so many facilitators and there was so much learning that was coming from so many different directions. And so I was honored to be a part of that and also, very honored and glad to be a part of this conversation today. Yes, and my name is Dr. Miriam Thompson. I'm an assistant teaching professor and director of the Mind and Behavior Assessment Clinic at UC Santa Barbara. Um, and I just completed my first year as a tenure track faculty member um, at UC Santa Barbara. So it's been really an exhilarating and an exhilarating year. I've definitely been outside my comfort zone. And I definitely echo what Shannon was saying and Kira was saying about um, the unconference. It was definitely, I felt so immersed in the, and really in the, in the unconference and really in just, you know, really kind of understanding what social justice is. And we, as we weren't just these passive participants, we were active contributors and really working towards flattening these hierarchies, which is really what these, a lot of conferences are, is that you have people who are orating for hours on end and you're just there kind of, you know, passively absorbing this information, but it was different because we really kind of deconstructed a lot of the information that, you know, historically has been presented to us. And we were these active contributors and really just learning about topics that, you know, really have been kind of, you know, always been pushed to the back end of conversations. So it was, mm -hmm. it was such a pleasure um, to be there with everyone. Yes, it definitely was. And I echo what they what they just said. I think the unconference was an excellent idea. And we're going to have our unconference right now. Kind of yes. sort right? It's the <laughs> remix to the session that we had. Mm -hmm. So um, as mm -hmm. I was saying, we were definitely discussing assessment, Shannon, right? And um, I know that you shared a mm -hmm. lot of resources, but if you could talk to us, you know, just remind me and... Um, Dr. Thompson here, what exactly the assessment pipeline is? So one of the things that, you know, I gathered from our conversation is that there's so many, mm -hmm. right? There's, 
the assessment pipeline is not just one thing or one pathway, but it can really manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, so one of our, our colleagues who was a part of the conversation, forgive me, her mind escapes me right now, um, but she was talking a lot about how for some, the assessment pipeline is actually a delayed identification, a lack of identification or misidentification. Um, and so she was speaking from her experience as um, a research scientist at Kennedy Krieger, I believe, um, in the autism you know, department or um, evaluation area. And she was speaking to how a lot of black and brown children um, you know, from maybe lower resource families, neighborhoods, or communities often go misdiagnosed or undiagnosed when it comes to autism or other um, developmental delays, and that that can be an extreme barrier to the early intervention services that they need and deserve. So that's one assessment pipeline. We also, you know, can think about when we say pipeline, one of the other things that comes to mind is the school to prison pipeline. And so we can also think about assessment pipelines in you know, the manner in which we may or may not be contributing to that school to prison pipeline. Um, in what ways is assessment being used to exclude students from educational spaces and educational opportunities? Um, so, I, I think that was that wasn't necessarily something I went into the conversation thinking about, but I think that was definitely something I walked away with. And that it's not just one pipeline, uh, Dr. Holiday. That was her name. Thank you, mm -hmm. here. Um, <laughs> that it it it's actually you know many things happening at all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that assessment pipeline it can go both ways. Is <laughs> what we're learning. And this, the kind of like either restricting or um, allowing an overflow, I guess you would say. Yeah, it um, operates on both ends of the continuum and neither is a great option. The right. over referrals or the under refer under over identification or under identification mm -hmm. as, as to what Shannon was saying, as it relates to the under identification of black and brown kids who um, are diagnosed with under identification of autism spectrum disorder mm -hmm. or the over identification of even more concerning labels such as ID, intellectual disability, mm -hmm. SLD, which there's a clear over identification in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And since we're on this topic, when I so I grew up in um, California and I moved back, I, I, I left the state when I was 15 years old and I moved back. I'm now 34. I moved back. Uh, last year. And mm -hmm. I had to like kind of reorient myself to the process of special education and identification of children who meet criteria for special education categories in this state. I'm sure we're all aware of um, Larry P. V. Ryle. So in the state mm -hmm. of California, it is um, illegal to administer intellectual assessments to black children. And I was somewhat aware of it, but I just see how much of a barrier it is. And so 
basically what school psychologists and special education teachers have to do is just kind of create, you know, look at it, kind of construct this puzzle of, you know, different assessment measures that essentially evaluate one's intellectual functioning, but it's done in such a haphazard fashion that it becomes, you know, this law that was created that you cannot, you know, um, administer intellectual assessments, you know, to Black children was perhaps done with benevolent intentions, but it's totally backfired. Um, because the approach is inefficient and it does, you know, not, it kind of results in decisions that, you know, you know, don't make any sense and just become, you know, really kind of a hazard to black children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a, that's something that we talked about too, right? It's like, how do we use the tools that we have, use the tools that we've been given in a way that is both ethical, meaningful, and supportive of our students. And when I think about that court case, um, Larry P, it's like the initial intention was to protect Black children from these tests and these assessments and these tools that we know have historically been used in oppressive ways, right? And so for me, it's like really calling into question what standards, quote unquote, what norms, quote unquote, are we using to um, assess our children to see like what their needs are, what their strengths are. Um, And so I can definitely see how that can backfire in some instances, but I also, a part of me still feels like you know, that's true. Because when I, when we look at, you know, the the norms and the things like that, we can see that for multiple reasons, Black children, children, you know, who speak a language other than English, children who come from lower resource backgrounds will score lower. But that doesn't mean that their intellectual disability or that their intellectual capacity is more limited. It's just a matter of what we're measuring them against. And so one one thing that one of my supervisors, Dr. Um, Angelina Norte, Norte, um, mentioned to me one time is that in her graduate training, it was actually proposed that the intellectual part of the evaluation is not even really necessary. Like if we are looking to support, yeah, (laughs) looking to support students within school buildings with accommodations and specialized instruction, really the information that we get from a lot of, you know, our cognitive tests aren't the most important pieces of information. You know, Mm -hmm. the most important pieces of information come from, you know, classroom-based assessments, come from student interviews, come from observations, come from you know, achievement testing isn't necessarily a one-for-one for what children are learning in a classroom, but it does inform goals. It does inform recommendations. And so I think about that often, right? Like what would happen if, I guess, in a situation like as is in California, you have to figure out, well, how do we classify, how do we find a student eligible with a specific learning disability if we're unable to use an intellectual assessment? And it's like a a question you ask, but it's like, well, but how do I also, I don't know, I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but I get frustrated because it's like, that's just a label. 
we know and we see what a student needs, regardless of what that label is. I agree. Really, you know, an ideal world, the entire system needs to be overhauled massively. And I don't know if in our mm -hmm. lifetimes that we'll ever mm -hmm. see that sort of change happen. I mean, we have so mm -hmm. many stakeholders and lobbyists who will prevent that, you know, from, from that effort, from that, that goal ever being realized. But that's what really needs to happen because the special mm -hmm. education system is just so overburdened. Obviously, we know that, you know, in the context of COVID, you know, we have an overabundance of referrals and as school psychologists, like we have to respond to those referrals and we have a limit, a finite amount of time to respond to those referrals if we're out of compliance. And yes, we can ask for extensions, but really, you know, and we're not able, that really diminishes the quality that we're able to put into these um, assessments and evaluations. And so it really, it, it's just, it's really just, you know, such a, you know, unfortunate circumstance that we are, that we're forced to, to deal with. And, um, to go back to what you're saying, Shannon, you mentioned something that prompted me to think that we really should value authentic assessment, just looking yeah. at the, the natural work products that students, um, produce, create in, in classrooms, like dioramas, you know, constructing knowledge in, in different ways, because really what we see with these standardized assessments of intellectual functioning is that they're prioritizing a Eurocentric form of intelligence, which looks at higher, higher order thinking as the end all be all. And we all remember there's an excellent podcast by um, Radiolab called G, which yeah. you all may, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's excellent. And so, and I have my students listen to it, but it talks about G and how general intelligence, and we're talking, I mean, this is at least a hundred, you know, a hundred years ago that this construct, and remember, this is just a theory. It's not law. Theories are meant to be challenged, but yet we're accepting these theoretical constructs as law. So, cause when we think about CHC theory, which the Woodcock Johnson test of um, cognitive abilities is based upon, um, I mean, it's looking at, you know, we have all of these different, you know, constructs of intelligence and, you know, we have fluid reasoning and crystallized intelligence and we all perfectly fit into these, you know, little boxes in terms of how we operate and think and how we compute things. But that's, we all know that human beings are complex, multifaceted individuals. How, how does it make sense to put us into these boxes? You know, we have short-term working memory and this is what it, you know, me you know, measures, you know, your ability to memorize the string of digits and, you know, reproduce it and, you know, be able to recall it and, you know, you know, processing speed, how quickly you're able to complete things with accuracy and efficiency. I mean, it's just, it, it's so frustrating. And, and I, I, I kind of experienced this um, moral dilemma as a professor, you know, I am, um, you know, teaching my these graduate students how to administer these these assessments with a total adherence to standardization. But I know, like, hey, you know, they're not perfect, and so, and I and I'm sure to say that. But and so, but I always grapple with that every year that I teach cognitive assessment. So, so mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we yeah. talk about that moral dilemma? Right. I was going to say, it's so, t listen, I will be quite candid and I, I don't know if my supervisor or my director will hear me, but um, to be honest, everybody, <laughs> currently I am not a school psychologist practitioner. Um, I made the decision actually to get out <laughs> of the school system <laughs> because of COVID and everything that's going on. I don't know, I, I talked to Dr. Thompson about it before this, mm -hmm. but in that conversation, 
when I was having the exit interview with my director, um, she made a comment after hearing what I said and was like, it seems like you're basically battling yourself to remain in this position. And I was like, yeah, that's really profound because it honestly is the moral dilemma. We were talking about disproportionality um, and that's how she posed that question. But I was like, something is ripping me apart just knowing that I'm giving tests and they're doing whatever they want with it. And these kids are being labeled. Like I can remember in particular advocating so hard for this one child who just got here and didn't know English and also didn't know English, but couldn't hear. I had an exit interview with my director and um, in the exit interview, we were talking about disproportionality in education. And I was just giving her my experience, you know, in the district and also just in the field in general. And she said something along the lines of, it seems like you were battling yourself um, just to remain in the profession. And I thought that was really profound that she paraphrased that back to me because that is essentially that tug of war that I was feeling as I was sitting here and just doing what I didn't think was thorough, to be honest, an assessment with kids just for the sake of getting them done and actually putting a label on them. So that tore at me a lot <laughs> and actually made me make the decision. <laughs> that maybe I need to do something wow. different. So I definitely resonate with that moral dilemma piece. Interested to hear, hear yeah. the rest of your stories. So I think about, so my first year working at the school that I was most recently at, um, so I didn't say this before, but I had mentioned it to Miriam earlier. Um, so Currently, I'm a doctoral student at the University of Maryland, but prior to that, I worked as a special level school psychologist um, in D.C. and in Maryland public schools. And so when I started working um, in my most recent district, there were three of us that we would call ourselves our, um, our psych sister circle, right? So there were like three Black women. We all started like on the first day. And I think about how now none of us are practicing school psychologists in the school. Um, so I do some contract work and I, I do assessment, I, I do therapy, but I'm not currently a school-based psychologist. Um, my other school psych friend, she is working in um, higher education right now. And the third of our circle is like doing all of her holistic healing in Mexico. So I think about each of our journeys and how so many of our conversations were about that battle. So many conversations were about, do I really want to do this? Like, are we even helping? Are we being a part of the solution? I'm not happy. I feel stuck. It was like every other, every other conversation we're having, we're like, oh, what's the exit plan? What's the exit strategy? And as like three young like millennial black women psychologists, why are we thinking about exit strategy? You know, I know people who I've worked with who have literally been school psychologists for like 20 and 30 years. And when I thought about that, in some ways it gave me like, some ways it gave me anxiety because I'm like, wow, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this for 20 and 30 years. So my first district, 
you know, I definitely, I have love for them. I will never speak badly on them. But the way it was so assessment heavy was like so draining for me. I think my last year I was there, I did 52 assessments, which for some people, that's not a lot. For me, that was too much. Um, and so I had to leave because I was like, I know, I know and have been trained to do so many different things other than assessment. But right now in this place, I feel like that's my only role and that just doesn't sit well with me. Um, and so I think for so many of us, especially school psychs of color, I'm going to go ahead and even say, you know, women, school psychs of color, it's like a burden because, you know, I heard someone say one time, I've come to this work because I am this work, right? So like, I do this because I really and truly believe that school psychologists can be a part of the solution. I think school mental health and like systems level work and partnering with schools and parents and communities and educators is like such a valuable and important place to be if you want to affect change in the lives of children. At the same time, in practice, that's not always how it feels, right? It's like, draining it's tired and it's like how do it's a, just an ongoing question for me even now I was joking earlier like girl I don't know what I want to do with my life but it's like I don't because a part of me I love being in the school building right but then another large part of me is like it is that battling myself like am I here am I making a difference am I you know, I talk about competency, I talk about equity, I talk about social justice and healing, but like, are my day-to-day -day activities contributing to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a whole word. I think that most, uh, particularly women of color, uh, we're probably having that battle right now in COVID-19 to be to be honest especially with you. Especially during COVID. Right. Especially because the backlog is ridiculous. I was telling, I was telling Miriam about that earlier, how the backlog is there. And I don't really know if it's getting better. I don't know if the backlog is going to get better. Um, and I also see a lot of um, political craziness that's going on right now and bucking, I guess, at the mm -hmm. thought of, especially in North Carolina, not giving assessments and just not using that score. Um, and that made me uncomfortable. It's like, I don't know if I'll be protected when some lawyers come at my neck because they want their kid, you know, the parents want their kid identify in this sort of way when there's nothing wrong with Johnny. But, you know, <laughs> you know so I know that that's uncomfortable, but I want to go back to what um, Miriam, Dr. Thompson was saying about overhauling the system, because yeah. I think in a way, some states have even tried with, you know, we're not going to do assessment in this way. I don't know if it's Ohio or Oregon. They don't have the categories or something like that. Oh, I know Iowa, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, I believe Iowa doesn't have um, disability placement categories. And I know that IDEIA, which is a federal law that's enforceable, which we have to follow. I believe that maybe the state, I know Iowa kind of deviates from what is typically done mm -hmm. um 
but yeah, I mean, still students are served under, you know, special education, but they do, there's something different about how they operate in their special education system. Yeah, I was always curious about how they did that, because I was like, I don't really know what that looks like. Like you said, I don't know if it's, you know, legal, but... (laughs) Oh, there's some questionable practices because I know, and we think, I mean, that begs the question, should we do RTI, should all states kind of mm-hmm. implement RTI, but there's even problems with that, like no system is perfect, and I don't know if we're asking too much to ask for perfection, but all I can say, I mean, there were so many issues, I was like taking notes, like this, the work we do is exhausting, and I love school psychology, I'm a school psychologist by training, but I'm not a practitioner, and which I find interesting because I, I think I was talking to to you, Kira. Like I I am a proponent of school psychology, but realistically, how can we ask school psychologists, you know, to do the work when pr- maybe they're assigned? There's one school psychologist. They're assigned to five different schools. They have, you know, a, a huge backlog and an increasing number of referrals which they have to respond to, and they're not being used appropriately. I mean, like you were saying, Shannon, like you, your role, like you're just doing assessments. You're th- this essentially this machine, and you're both holding to what your school district says. And I wish that there was greater autonomy, but you really are beholden to what the principal says, the administrator, the school district. We, I wish that we had more creativity and more autonomy in terms of the decisions that we make. Like, no, I'm going to do more interventions. I'm going to, you know, diminish the importance of assessments and do more consultation, you know, do more programming and more community-based outreach. I mean, our roles just aren't used appropriately. And how can we attract more people in this profession and telling them about everything that we do when the school district, so the schools themselves aren't supporting us. And that's another conversation to be had. And that needs to be at the next conference next year. I'm going to miss that. Like, we need to talk about this. You know, this is a problem. (laughs) They're like, go change the world. But we're like, with what? Empower us. But how? Empower I mean, us, we can empower you. Like, this is what we need yeah. to do. <laughs> I honestly, I think it comes, I mean, it has, a part of it has to be, like, advocacy, right? Like, I think about how, so I look at, so my partner, he's in graduate school for school counseling. And I look at the way school counselors move in certain districts and, like, the way they're able to advocate for the importance of their position, Right. I don't know. I don't think there's any elementary school in where I live in Prince George's County, Maryland, that doesn't have at least one school counselor. I can think of when I was working in Maryland public schools, I had three. So somehow, some way, the messaging is that school counselors are essential, right? We need them. We use them. We work with them. They're a part of our school culture. I also recognize like when I was in school, I'm, I mean, I'm, we had to have a school psychologist. Do I know who that person was? No idea, right? But who was visible? The school counselor. And so when I think of like the messaging and the advocacy, I'm like, okay, maybe that's the direction we need to go because in many ways, you know, as school mental health providers, school counselors, social workers, school psychologists, some folks have like PPWs, we, have a lot of similar roles and sometimes you know it can feel like maybe we're in competition for like budgets and jobs and schools and positions but I think 
it works so much better when we're all able to be there and to work together, right? So at my most recent school, we had one and a, one and a half um, social workers, two guidance counselors, myself, and a behavior tech. And like when we, we would call ourselves the behavior squad or the wellness squad, and like it was so nice to be able to have that community of practitioners just within one school because it's like I'm here I'm I was there every day that was my only school right so I'm here and we're able to to work together and so I think the other one part is advocacy and messaging maybe like on the part of like our professional not professional organizations probably also on a, a policy level but I also think I question do like administrators really know what psychologists do and like what we're capable of? I would venture to guess no. I feel like most people don't know what school psychologists do, but in particular, as you said, administrators, and they're the ones that have the most, you know, influence and control over our positions. That's an excellent, excellent point and question, Shannon. Yeah. Yeah. I so then like whose job is it to, to, to inform them? Is it our job? Is it their no, and I know that they've been trying to work to increase, um, I guess, administrator awareness of school psychologists, the breadth of our role at a mm -hmm. national level. Like, I think they've tried to invite them to conferences. At least I've saw like discounted rates for administrators and things like mm -hmm. that. So um, I, you know, and this is where I'm going to get real raw. Um can't wait. I have to say that school psychology is very political. There's a lot of political aspects of school psychology. First of all, it's tied to special education and mm -hmm. those dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And how those dollars are allocated. Um, but secondly, I have to bring this up. I don't know that competition piece that you mentioned, Shannon. I think that's real. And I think that, um, there is a feeling sometimes by other professionals that we try to infringe on their rights um, and kind of take over. But just a misunderstanding about our role, I think it lends itself to that. But then, you know, there's the age old problem with school psychologists and teachers. Like, I mean, it's there. We have to, we have to acknowledge that. <laughs> It's definitely there. Uh, and that's something that we have to problem solve because our teachers are our administrators, right? So how do we how do we how do we go about facilitating that relationship so that I guess it's more it lends itself to advocacy for our role and our position? Because that I feel like if we could do more maybe invite them to a couple of more NAS or I don't know, do something, but we just need to, like you said, let them know what all we can do and actually over-communicate that we're here to support them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I feel like I just want us to be seen and I feel like sometimes we're not seen and I hope we're valued. And I, I know a lot of it, I don't know if we're, we're seen, we're heard, we're valued. And I think a part of it is there's a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of our role. And that's kind of led me to a, a, a paper that I'm working on right now. And actually a proposal that I submitted to NAS regarding the, the um, misconception, misperceptions of the field of school psychology, you know, how people construe us to be, what people think we do. We're often completed with educational psychologists or we're 
you know, counseling or we're, we're school-based counselors, which frustrates me. So people really don't have an understanding of our role. And then we think, oh, you're a school psychologist. Then, you know, the, the thought is that all we do is perform assessments. So um, again, we're, we're always associated with, you know, assessments or people just don't really understand our role. And it's just so frustrating. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think it's frustrating, but in some ways it's also, it's like a double-edged sword. So like when I was in schools most recently, I remember our supervisors would say like, RTI and assessment is what sets us apart, right? So you need to show your principles that, you know, this is what we're bringing to the table because if it's not for testing and if it's not for, you know, I guess being an RTI coordinator, then what we do isn't seen as something that only we can do, you know? And so on one hand, it's like, yes, this assessment piece is something that like say professional school counselors can't do and something that social workers aren't typically trained to do. So like it sets us apart. And I think it's an area of specialty for us. But it's also like, how do you also say, yes, this is a specialty. This is an area that we're like experts in and then not have that be our defining feature. That's an excellent point. You're right. That is a unique aspect of our roles that no one else can can do because it's it's a skill that you really that you have to be trained in graduate school to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like anyone can just adopt, you know, assessment administration skills, which are hard. So you're right. It's reserved for us because we're trained to do so, but we don't want to do that constantly. Total, a total, that's the epitome of a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I think back to what you're saying about the system needing to be overhauled. And I think that that's something that we need to look at. Cause I remember in our session at the unconference, I was saying that I'm not anti-assessment. I'm really pro, you know, prevention and intervention, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not so much about, you know, the assessment piece, like it's how much assessment am I doing? It's mm-hmm. like, am I using the assessment responsibly? <laughs> you know, all of mm-hmm. these things make me feel better about that. But when we have at the back of that or underlining or underpinning that a system that's just very broken <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it continues to um, over and under identify kids that look like me, it just becomes, mm-hmm. it, it really becomes a lot to be honest. And I think that's, that's our, that's our current struggle. That's our current struggle. Our current struggle is an upside down triangle, right? Like you talk about, you talk about like RTI or like MTSS. It's like, well, what happens when your triangle is upside down? What happens when everybody is tier three? That means that something is wrong at tier one. The U.S. has a tier, a core instruction problem. Right. Like, what happens? Assessment can't fix everything, you know? So it's like, sometimes I'm I'm like, I think we're asking the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Like, like as a part of my, um, my research work with my advisor, we've been working, Lord, I hope they don't hear this, but maybe they need to hear this. I don't know. Um, we've been working with one school district and here in Maryland and they you know are working very 
diligently around, you know, disproportionality and identification and discipline of um, students who identify as Black. Um, and a lot of the questions are like, well, why, why this disproportionality, disproportionality, like what can we do? Why are so many Black kids being over-identified? Why are so many Black students be, being, you know, overly disciplined? And my, in my head, I'm like, why are we asking questions that we already know the answer to? Like, why are we asking questions? We know the answer. We know the answer is racism, historic racism. We know the answer is intentional limiting of resources. We know, like, there's so many answers that are not necessarily going to be answered in these meetings that we're having these or these surveys that we're doing. I know, or asking the same research question over and over again, but in different ways. I know. <laughs> exactly. It's like, when are we going? To, when is someone going to say, hey, you know, perhaps we need to do something different? Like you said, overhaul mm-hmm. the system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, are people, you know, ready for the work? And I know that there are, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, a a population, a group of individuals who are, but we need people, we need buy-in, we need stakeholders to, you know, recognize that this is what needs to be done. But sadly, in this country, people don't care about education. They should have, they don't care about education. Then I know they're like, then school psychology, they don't care about that either. So it's just getting, getting buy-in trying to, you know, convince people. And it's it just, it's, it's tiring. It's, it's tiring having to convince people to re- please allocate your funds so that we can really make some reasonable changes because as a trainer of school psychologist, you know, I'm encouraging and, I, and I'm, you know, encouraging students, you know, go into the field, be a school psychologist. When at the back of my mind or really in the forefront of my mind, I know that what they're walking into, you know, it's kind of, it's a bit of a mess and they're going to have to do a lot of figuring out. And what I'm training them is best practice, but I know they're not doing best practice in the school. I mean, how can you, how can we ask people to do best practice? And that's one of the names of one of the textbook, best practices in school psychology. And it's hard to do that. Yeah. So I want to ask you, oh, oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I'm just wondering, so like, for my folks who are school-based practitioners right now, and for my folks who are trainers of school psychology or in academia, school psychology related, like, what do we do? Like, we can't necessarily burn it all down today. So like, what do we do tomorrow? Like, I'm a practicing school psychologist, like, and I have a, like, I was just in an eligibility meeting yesterday, right? Rattling off all of the things that, I now know by heart, but like what, like what do we do if we say that we want to disrupt assessment pipelines? What are the things that I should be keeping in mind as a practitioner or as a trainer? Yes, how do we get into some good trouble? I just had just had to say yeah. that. Let's get into some good trouble. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say that's an excellent segue, Shannon, because that's exactly where I was gonna go. I was gonna be like, you know what? What can we do? <laughs> like, what is something like if we were to give a list? to these individuals, what would that list say? Like, hey, be mindful of this um, when you're practicing, be mindful of this when you're training. So I'll go with the practicing lens, right? So for me, I think it's important to let it be known where your passion is. 
So for me, I've not ever shied away from the fact that I'm in this field because I want black and brown kids that look like me to be successful. And I want to disrupt things that hinder them from being successful. So I've always communicated that. I communicate that in my assessment. I communicate that even when I don't want to sometimes in meetings, <laughs> I say it and I let it be known. So everybody knows like, me getting into good trouble is just something that I've consistently been doing and I've not been um, one to, I guess, back down from difficult conversations. And whether that makes you difficult or not, I think it's there's more integrity in taking a stance than um, just allowing yourself to be pushed and moved in different directions, if that makes any sense. So definitely, in the sum summary, just know your passions, communicate your passion, and also don't be afraid if you're practicing psychologists to engage in those difficult conversations um, because it's important. I agree. And another thing in terms of what are some concrete um, uh, actions that are that can be feasibly implemented, one is to consider going to the NAS Public Policy Institute. Unfortunately, this year and last year, um, it couldn't have been, it wasn't able to be delivered in person due to COVID, but I'm hoping that next year, um, and it takes place in Washington, D.C., where you can learn about, um, you know, how to, you know, dismantle these hierarchies and learn how to make, you know, reasonable um, yet small changes in the system. Because I understand we can't, you know, you know, it's not reasonable to ask us to, you know, overhaul it, you know, you know, you know, within the next year. But what are some changes? You know, be be conscious about, you know, bias. We all have bias and know that doesn't make anyone, you know, racist. But we all, when we see someone, we're bombarded with images or schemas of what we expect someone to act or speak like. And that's critically important at the assessment level. So being aware of unconscious bias. I think what I would add to that, um, to echo some of what you said, Kira, is to maybe really center your why. Like, why are you a school psychologist? Why are you doing this work? And what makes it meaningful? And I think, you know, sometimes it can almost feel monotonous to do evaluations, to like write these reports. Um, but if we can do it in a way that is censoring the why, so like my why is supporting, you know, resilience for children with marginalized identities. Like that's my why, like my broad overall why. I just want to help the babies, right? So writing my reports in a way that speaks to that, writing my reports in a way that is strength-based and also like seeing the whole child, meaning them, their interests, their strengths, their needs, also like their family, their connections, you know, um, thinking about strengths, not just being individual, also thinking about strengths being, being communal. And as a practitioner and also as um, someone who is currently in an academic space, I think it's also important for me to have folks that I can go to and like ask questions and folks who will tell me when maybe I'm not being truthful to my wife, right? So if I'm just doing it to do it, to get it done, and maybe, you know, I'm not asking certain questions, I'm not being authentic in my assessment, you know, we haven't had that conversation yet today where we talk about there's difference between testing and assessment. Um, 
but like having folks that I could go to and vent, but then also having folks who can like help check and center me when needed, especially since, you know, like being a school psychologist with a social justice focus and lens and purpose can be very exhausting. And so um, thankful for conversations and community like this, because I think it helps to like re-energize, especially if you're practicing or working in a space where maybe you're maybe sometimes the only dissenting voice, like that can be a hard place to be in. Um, and so to be able to have a space where you can go and be refueled. I think also is helpful. Yeah, so I think it's also some internal work like you were kind of hinting at, Shannon. Um, just knowing that, you know, your existence is resistance. Um, mm -hmm. Centering your why um, most definitely is still help you, I guess, be resilient in those moments where you are the, 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 the center actually at the table, but also just knowing that you need to um, engage in self-care. I know everybody says that, but you also need to set boundaries in your work because you're, if you're looking at this profession as this is my passion and this is what I want to do, then you got to strategically think about longevity and how you will accomplish that. So we don't want you to be out here, um, jeopardizing yourself if that makes any sense we want you to take care of yourself because you are a part of the resistance another thing is like I think Shannon also mentioned just building community and making sure you have those resilient communities and people that you can talk to and you can go to to vent and that will check you and be your accountability partner and also I think um Dr. Thompson you are also talking about advocacy sometimes I know it's difficult but one place of challenge that I want to give to people is don't feel like you don't belong on boards and also don't belong in state organizations um mm -hmm. take that leap of faith if that is something that you're even thinking about because sometimes like you said like I said your existence is resistance so just being in that spacing able to being able to shape people's minds or getting in good trouble at that moment I guess um can help change the direction of certain programming and things like that so that is one piece um okay. yeah I agree you know it's funny you say that um take a leap of faith I have that written on a post-it note on my desk because oh, I just you need a you need that that belief in yourself and you need you need to be surrounded by people such as this space right now which I'm grateful to be in people that believe in you. Yes, you can do it. Yes, you can, you know, dismantle the system, you know, disrupt, you know, make these changes, make waves, you know, get people uncomfortable. Um, because that's really the only way that we'll be able to, um, you know, make a meaningful impact. Yeah, I want to thank you both so much for engaging in this conversation with me. I feel like we could have probably went, <laughs> we could have probably went for another hour, to be honest. Yes. But I do, I do appreciate you. And I think that this was a great conversation. If you have any more, any last words or any promos or pubs you want to put out there, <laughs> I'll give you that space to do so. But if not, um, the audience has really enjoyed this. Yes. I just want to say, I know there were, you know, some moments where, you know, it may have sounded like we were critiquing school psychology, which we were, but also like from a place of love, like I love 
being a school psychologist. And I love being able to continue my study in the area of school psychology. And I think because I love it so much, I just really want us to continue to like grow and be better and to like hold each other and ourselves accountable within that space. Because I, like when I think about just the spaces and the, the intersections that schools, where schools live, right? Like a place where community comes together, where children and schools and families come together, like that is such a powerful place to be. And so I just think like, I don't know, I really feel like school psychology can change the world, but like we have to be critical in order to do that. Um, so I just wanted to say that because I felt like in, in the moment I was like, oh, no, it's uh, throw everything away <laughs> but like we tend uh, to go in it's okay <laughs> <laughs> we tend to go in yeah. I feel the same as Shannon like make no mistake I love school psychology and I'm mm-hmm. I'm grateful to be in this space but yeah I mean but it doesn't mean that it's you know without you know critique because we only grow with you know constructive criticism and mm-hmm. so and that's what I want you know I guess I'm 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 coming across with some tough love because I love <laughs> That's right. I love our field. So I love this field so much that I know we can do more and we are, you know, we're, we're, we're making growth. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough love school psychology. All the people who are listening to this and practitioners and scholars just know that we just, we just want the field to do better. That's all. tuning in and I hope you caught some gems from today's show if you really liked our show please make sure to subscribe and share the link with a friend to offer feedback or pose insightful questions I'd welcome you to submit a voice message on our profile or email schoolsitesisters at gmail.com our social media platforms are at School Psych Sis on Twitter and at School Psych Sisters on Instagram. If you identify as a woman of color in the field of school psychology, we do welcome you to our online community through Facebook. Thanks once again for listening in to Dear School Psych Sister. We hope to see you next time.